All right. Um, so as we as we jump in here, let me make sure. All right, I'm gonna have PowerPoint going up here in just a little bit on the screen. So you may, if you don't have it in speaker view, you may want to put that. Otherwise, you might not be able to see stuff. Uh, but I'll I'll be sharing my screen here in in just a bit. So. Those of you who, uh, who go to Sunnybrook, which I think is most to all of you, you may or may not know who Julie Weiss is. Uh, if you don't, Julie is Paul Weiss, who works on staff at Sunnybrook. It's Paul Weiss's wife, and it is Morgan Weiss, who is, uh, does youth ministry at Sunnybrook and, and has spoken at the table a number of times. That's Morgan Weiss's uh, mom. Uh, but it also happens to be Julie is, if, if you don't know, Julie Weiss is my aunt. She's actually my mom's sister. And, and I'll, I'll venture that if, if you had never known that and if you had uh, never uh, met her before but you saw my mom walk into Sunnybrook one day that you would know pretty quickly um, whose sister she belonged to, that she and Julie were related, because uh, they look a whole lot alike. At least that's what I'm told, is that they look a whole lot alike. So much so that there have been times when my mom has actually come uh, into Stillwater, and she's been up at the church building there, and people have come up to her and started to talk to her as Julie. They've, they've confused the two. Uh, when they've uh, when they've come up and seen, uh, and so they they've got this similarity that that at least again to other people seems to be so close that they're almost twins. But I have never, for one, been able to actually see that. I've I've never had that issue. And actually, when people have told me, "Man, your mom looks so much like jo- Julie," or it's so obvious that they're sisters, or "Man, they could be twins," I've honestly always struggled to see that. Uh, always struggled to to notice that that was true about uh, about them, and, I, and I'm not exactly uh, sure what all people see. I, I've seen a little bit more of it in recent years, but I've never struggled confusing the two. And and the main reason why is because I know my mom too well. Uh, I, I grew up around my mom. I've been around. My, I can I can count on two hands the amount of people that I've spent more time with than my mom. And so it's never been an issue for me when I see my Aunt Julie that I confuse her uh, with my mom at any point. They, they don't even seem close to the same to me. Uh, maybe you've experienced this with uh, friends that are identical twins or something, and everyone gets them mixed up because they look exactly alike except for their family, who's spent all their lives with them, and, and they have no problem telling the difference and, and almost sometimes struggle to see how they look alike. Uh, In our text this week, at the very end of Romans, Paul begins to wrap it up by giving this this one final warning or or urging to the church there in Rome, and that is that they would be on guard against false teaching, that they would be on alert and that they would be discerning for the false teachers that will come into their midst. But he never actually, unlike all the other letters that he writes about false teachers in, he never actually stops to pinpoint what the false teaching is that they should be looking for. Never tells them, hey, when this happens, then you'll know. He never says, hey, they're teaching these kinds of things. He just says, be on guard against false teachers. So then the question is, how are they supposed to know? When those teachers come to Rome, and they will come, how are they supposed to know that what they're hearing is heresy, that it does not fall in line with true and real doctrine? 
Um, and the answer actually comes in the, the very next verse, verse 17 out of chapter 16, where he says that they teach these divisive things and these obstacles that are, he says, contrary to the teaching that you learned. This is how you know, Paul says, is you spend your time knowing and learning deeply the truths that have been given to you. When people came and they preached the gospel to you, when you sat here and read this letter that I, that I sat and wrote out to you, look over this again, know it well, and when someone shows up and they say something contrary to it, you'll know the difference. Uh, later he, he goes on to say that I want you to be excellent or experts at what is good but innocent about what is evil. He wants them to be able to know it so well that kind of like my mom that I've been around all my life, I will never struggle to confuse her with someone else. Know it that well, Paul says. Know the gospel. Know the teaching that I've given you so well that when the counterfeit comes, you'll be able to tell the difference. Um, as you move through your life, and some of you, this might be, I don't know, your last table, uh, as you head out from here, or even as you continue on in college, you are going to hear a lot of different teaching about life, and about God, and about the Bible. Uh, some of that will be in your classroom, or on Zoom classes. Um, some of that will be online, in blog posts that you see or on YouTube videos. Some of that will be in churches that you go to. And some of that teaching will be true and a lot of that teaching will be false. A lot of that teaching will run contradictory to the gospel and the doctrine that is outlined in the book of Romans. And it is our heart for you that you will know the teaching so well that when the false comes, when the fake comes, you'll be able to spot it a mile away that you'll be able to see it and know it well. And so what I want to be able to do for you tonight is walk you back through the things that you were taught this last year out of the book of Romans to highlight some of the key things uh, that, we were, uh, that, that we had explained to us, the teachings, the doctrines that Paul outlined. But um, rather than just kind of walk through it uh, in order or chronologically, I decided to kind of do things different uh, tonight. Tonight I want to give you um, the top ten teachings uh, of Romans. So you're going to get uh, basically Romans' greatest hits tonight, all right? Um, and I'm going to give you the, the, my ranking of the 10 greatest teachings in the book of Romans. A uh, little bit of a disclaimer here. This is not an official list. Uh, you're not going to go to the back of your Bible and find this in your appendix. Uh, this is the 10 best teachings of the book of Romans. Uh, this is my own list that I made based on these three criteria. Uh, level of importance... Uh, the amount of emphasis that it receives in uh, Paul's letter here to the Romans. And then lastly, um, what Drew thinks is awesome. So, uh, my, own, my own kind of love for the text. And, and I, I don't know about you, I kind of get into like lists like these. You can find them all over the internet. Uh, the 10 greatest NBA championship teams or uh, greatest Christian songs of the 90s. Uh, which is my era there. I came across uh, the other day a top 50 office episodes uh, list, which is really interesting, but quite frankly, a sham uh, because it did not have Casino Night ranked in the top 10, which as we all know, Casino Night is easily top 10, if not number one. Uh, it didn't even have Branch Wars in the list at all, so uh, I don't know who wasted their time putting that list together, but I digress. Uh, tonight I'm giving you the top 10 uh, teachings or doctrines from the book of Romans. So let me see here if I can get my screen shared with you. There it is. Top 10 
10 teachings from Romans uh, according to Drew. Uh, so, uh, as we'll, we'll just jump in and I'll, I'll say this actually, I, I'm not going to have a lot of time on these. So we're going to move through these things quick. Some of them we'll spend a little bit more time talking and some a little bit less. Here's number 10. Everyone is sinful and deserving of God's wrath. Romans 3.23 puts it like this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, it's probably a little bit weird to say that this is one of my ten favorite teachings from the book of Romans. Everyone is sinful and deserves God's wrath, deserves His judgment and hell. I don't know if you remember uh, the first, those of you guys who were with us at the beginning, that first like, uh, five, six weeks going through Romans, and we were just in Romans 1 and 2 and the beginning of 3, which is just all bad news. And there were times when it was, it was tough getting through it. Scott and I were talking, you know, it felt like every week we were just saying, hey, uh, welcome to the table. We're so glad you're here. Uh, all of you deserve to go to hell. Um, we'll see you next week where we'll tell you once again that you all deserve to go to hell. There were times when we were just like, man, I hope they will please, please stick with us through all of this. Um, But as hard as this truth is, it is actually a really, really important one. This one is foundational. And if you get rid of this idea, if you do not grasp this truth, then so many other things in Romans begin to erode away in front of you. And actually, this is an important one to cling to because this is one of the key areas of false teaching today. That human beings are inherently good. Um, the number one sermon on YouTube, actually, at least I think it's still the number one sermon on YouTube, with over three million views, is a sermon called The Power of I Am by Joel Osteen. And in that sermon, Osteen outlines that the major problem with human beings is that we do not have a good enough self-esteem. That we are not... Um, We are not keeping an optimistic and an open mindset, ready to receive whatever it is that we want to take on ourselves by claiming, I am good, I am smart, I am attractive. Um, And this is, like I said, the number one sermon on YouTube. This is a widely believed truth that we are basically good people who have some mistakes or some flaws, or at least I'm a good person. Um, But if you do not grasp this truth, that you are not a good person, And I am not a good person. I am a twisted, corrupt version of the man that I ought to be. I am severed from God by my rebellion and my turning against Him. If I do not grasp that truth, then I will always spend my life looking for answers in the wrong place, namely within myself. This is why most most philosophies or pop culture psychology or weird, vague spirituality, the main form of teaching has to do with looking within yourself. If you're struggling, the problem is you need to become a more fulfilled version of yourself. You need to be self-actualized. You need to look in yourself for your truth. Or, or, or you need to just focus on you for a little while. Those kinds of things. And all of that is poison. You will never find the truth you need outside of yourself or, or within yourself. You need to go beyond it. And that leads us to the second major truth, which is this, that we must be told of Jesus in order to be saved. 
Romans 10, 9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. But then he goes on to say in verses 14 and 15, How can a person believe that Jesus is Christ or how can they call on Him that they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about Him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? The logic of this is pretty straightforward, that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot make ourselves right with God. We need Jesus. We need to place faith in Him. But people cannot place their faith in Jesus without hearing about them. And they cannot hear about Jesus unless somebody tells them. This is, this is a truth that goes to my heart because I know that there are people around me that need salvation, that need to be saved, and they cannot have it unless I tell them first about Jesus. Number eight is this. We, and, and from here on out when I say we or us, I'm talking about people who are Christians, who are in Christ, who are followers of Jesus. We are deeply loved children of God. Romans 8, 15-16 says this, You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Uh, what Paul gets into as he goes into Romans 8 is this amazing truth that God has done something unfathomable. That he has taken these sinful, wicked, rebellious people who have exchanged his glory for lesser things, those people who have willfully chosen to turn against him, and he has adopted them as his dearly loved children. He's taken his enemies and he's made him his own kids. And this is something that is mind-blowing. The Father, by definition, 1 John tells us this, God is love. That is, throughout eternity, this is what the Father has done primarily. He has poured out His affection on His Son, Jesus Christ. That is what He has lived doing for all eternity. And what Paul tells us is that He has invited us into this eternal relationship of love between the Father and the Son, and He treats us with the same kind of love that he treats his own son Jesus with. So much so that later in Romans 8, Romans 8, 38-39, Paul says this, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, next, number seven, God is using all things for our good. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to His purposes. Here's another area where false teaching is quick to come in the church. And oftentimes that false teaching uses verses just like Romans 8, 28. The teaching goes something like this, that God would never allow anything but good into the lives of His children. And if you are a child of God, and particularly if you are a faithful child of God, if your faith is true and if you are obedient, then you will experience only good. Things will continue to get better and better for you. There's this phrase that's been used numerous times over the last uh, 20, 30 years. The safest place to be is in the center of God's will. 
Um, sounds beautiful. Sounds heartwarming. The only problem with that statement is the entirety of the Bible. Uh, from front to back, we see that people who are in the middle of God's will often go through difficult and hard things. From Abraham to Moses to Jesus, the very Son of God, to Paul, the man who wrote these words, we will go through hard times. But the beautiful and amazing news is that God is able to and wants to and delights in taking even the hardest and darkest and most difficult parts of your life and using those things for your own good. And then Paul goes on to define what that good is. It's the very next verse of uh, Romans 8.29, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And let me tell you something. A nice, easy, comfortable life pales in comparison to being formed into the likeness of the creator of the universe. And that is what God is doing in your life through every good and bad, through every dark and light thing that has ever come into your life. Even if you can't see it right now, he has the ability to use that for your goods to make you more like Jesus. Number six. Jesus didn't just set us free from sin's penalty, but he also set us free from sin's power. Romans 6, 6-7 says this, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. This has become one of my favorite teachings. And honestly, if this was, if this was just a, a list of Drew's favorite teachings, this would be near the very top of it. Um, because I spent a lot of my life buying into the lie that I would never be able to overcome my sin. That my sin had me bound and chained and, and that as much as I wanted to do the right thing, that I would never be able to fully do it. That I would be um, doomed to continue in the habit that sin had me in for all my life. But Paul is clear in the book of Romans, particularly in Romans 6, he is clear in there that that is not true for those who are in Jesus. That sin is no longer our master anymore. In verse 4, just a couple of verses before the ones I read to you, he says that we were therefore buried with Christ in baptism in order that just as Jesus was raised up and resurrected, that we too may be raised to walk in newness of life. And as long as we live in this world, we will, yes, still be susceptible to the influence of sin, but we will never be under its power. Any more power than we ever give it. We are actually freed from that and no longer have to be controlled if we choose to walk with Jesus. Uh, number five. The natural response to all that God has done for us is whole life obedience. Romans 12.1 Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Um, I, uh, I, I like this one a lot. That, that word there, by the way, I guess I should bring it back up for you. That word there, true worship there at the end of the... Uh, uh, in the end of the verse, in the Greek, it's logikos. 
from where we get the word logic. This is your logical, or, or some, uh, some translations translated, this is your reasonable worship. This is the reasonable response to all that God has done for us. And, and Paul hits on this idea throughout the letter. He'll say at the very beginning, he talks about the call is to bring people to the obedience of faith. The obedience that flows out of faith. And at the end of the letter, I don't know if you noticed it this week, he said the same thing, the obedience of faith. Um, But here is uh, two key ways to get this wrong. One is to get the order wrong and to believe that my my goal is to, to offer my body as a sacrifice and to live sacrificially so that God will accept me. Uh, that's, that's false, actually. Paul spent 11 chapters telling us how God has already accepted you in Jesus. And therefore, he says, and as we get to 12, therefore we live in response to Him. The second way to get this wrong is to drop the response altogether. And there are a number of people in churches today who teach that things like repentance are not necessary. That you are saved by grace and therefore there is no reason to feel like you have to obey. That's just legalism, they say. Paul says himself in Romans, at the beginning of Romans 6, Shall we go on sinning because, so that grace may increase? And then he answers, by no means. We've been set free from sin and that is false that we should live a life continued in sin after those things. Number four is this. Jesus' death allows God to be true to His nature. That is, God is by His nature just and righteous. He always does the right thing. He always punishes sin. But He's also by His nature merciful, compassionate, and loving. And there's no way for those two things to go together except for by the death of Jesus Christ. Here's what it says in Romans 3, 24 through 25. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice. The word there literally is propitiation, which means something or someone who absorbs wrath or turns away wrath. So Jesus absorbed God's wrath in his blood through faith to demonstrate God's righteousness. Because in his restraint, God had passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Jesus to demonstrate His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. The idea here is one that is actually attacked a lot in churches. There are a number of Christians who do not like the idea of propitiation. Namely because they hate the idea that God has wrath and that God's wrath has to be satisfied. No, no, God's too loving for that. God's too nice and kind for that. And so they'll teach you that this idea is untrue. But God's wrath doesn't make Him mean. It is, it is His great love and His hatred for all the sin that destroys His creation and destroys the sons and daughters that He loves. It's that hatred that leads to His wrath. And you can trust that God is always going to be right. He is always going to punish sin. But the question is, how can God end sin on this earth without ending me? The answer is Jesus. He takes all of my sin, all of my wickedness, places it on Jesus on the cross, and then punishes all of my sin on Jesus, punishes all of your sin on Jesus, so that there's no more wrath left for you, so that there's no more wrath or punishment left for Him. And God can do both of those things because of the crucifixion, because of the uh, death of Jesus. Number three. The life-giving Spirit of God lives in us. 
Romans 8 says, Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through His Spirit who lives in you. Uh, this one was actually further down on my list earlier in the week. And then I began to look at it and realize that a number of the other teachings I just gave to you, particular, particularly 6, 7, and 8, if you go back and look at those, all three of those ones are only possible because of this truth. Because of the fact that Jesus has placed His own Holy Spirit in us. To be human means that you and I are susceptible to death and decay. We are constantly in a state of entropy, breaking down more and more each day, and one day death will come. It also means that we are constantly, because we live in fallen bodies, in a fallen world, we are susceptible to sin's influence while we are here on this earth. But those who are in Christ will become these sort of walking paradoxes, in that we are Uh, breaking down and succumbing to death over and over again, but at the exact same time that our bodies are wasting away, we are being filled with the life-giving Spirit. Everywhere you look in the Bible where you see the Spirit, you see life coming. From the very beginning where, where the writer of Genesis tells us that the Spirit hovered over the darkness of the deep, waiting to breathe life into creation, to Ezekiel, where in Ezekiel, I believe it's 37, he sees this valley of dry bones, and when the Spirit comes on it, life comes into them all the way to the resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus is raised up by Him, the God and His Holy Spirit, who does these things. And that Spirit, the Spirit of life, lives in you, and no matter what happens to your body, one day He will renew it and make it new. And not just that, but while we live in this world, though we are susceptible to sin's influence, as we walk by the Spirit, we become less and less influenced all the time. We become less and less walking according to the flesh, as Paul says, and more and more walking according to the Spirit. Number two, we are saved by undeserved, death-defeating, sin-crushing grace through faith in Jesus. Romans 6.23, a beautiful short verse. This one's worth committing to memory, guys. For the wages of sin is death. That is, wages are what I earned. That's what I deserve for the work that I did. What I deserve and earn by my sin, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift is what I do not deserve. The gift is what is given to me in spite of me. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Every blessing on the list that I have given to you is ultimately rooted in this truth, that in Jesus all of my sin is paid for, and the death that I face and deserve has already been conquered, and I did not do anything to earn that. There is nothing in me that made any of these things on this list happen. There is nothing in me that deserves that or earned that. Instead, Paul says this in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. I don't have it on the screen. Please write these ones down. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God, this is verse 8, but God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, 
I know we joke around and you guys give us crap because every week we're saying that this is our favorite text and this is our favorite verse. Um, I mean it on this one and I've meant it. Not this, this one hasn't changed. For the last two years, this has been my favorite verse in all of Romans. Romans 5, 8. But God proves His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that. I love what he goes on to affirm that no matter how big your sin is, God's grace is always bigger. It always overcomes it. You cannot outsin his grace. Um, it's bigger than those things. And I love that truth. And it's high on my list. It would be number one, except for this one. That God is faithful from front to back. Paul says in Romans 1, 16 through 17, this is probably the the theme statement for the entire book of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. He says in there, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. What he's saying and what we argued this this uh, year is that the, the righteousness of God is his character. What, what, what Paul is arguing is that God is faithful to his word, that he is trustworthy and reliable, that you can know that he will never move away from his character. He's true to his character to always be just and do the right thing. He's true to his character to be loving. And he is faithful to the promises he made all the way back in Genesis that one day he would bless the whole world through Abraham's family. That one day he would save the whole world and make everything right through him. And Paul makes it clear over and over again in this book in places like chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 9 and 10 and 11 that God did not change the rules all of a sudden when we come to the New Testament. It was never, the law is what saves you, the law is what saves you. No, never mind that, now we're going with Jesus. No, from the very beginning, Paul makes this argument, and you can look at it in Scripture, that his plan was always to save anyone who would come to him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That all of God's plan centers on the God-man, Jesus Christ, and all of the Bible points to him. This is the gospel that saves us. This is the gospel that strengthens us and establishes us. And our plea for you is that you would not forget that. That you would cling to that. That you would, no matter where you go, no matter where you end up, that you would hold to the truths that have been revealed to you in the book of Romans because it is not only the truths that saved you for the first time. These are the truths that establish you. These are the truths that make you strong in the faith, that grow you up into Jesus Christ. And so we plead with you that you would hold on to them. And now, I feel like it is most fitting to close out our semester with a paraphrase, at least, of Paul's closing words in the book of Romans. So I pray this prayer over you tonight. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you in accordance with the gospel, the message that we proclaim about Jesus Christ, the mystery hidden for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the scriptures so that all the nations might come to the obedience of faith. To that one, the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Love you guys. I'm going to hand it over to Scott now.
Okay. Um, do you have any maybe questions that they could 